Three, two, one. <coughs> Refresh. 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 It's a podcast. It's a podcast. Podcast for those bold enough. Bold enough. Bold enough to radically rethink. How we teach. Learn and achieve. No, come back and bother. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. Welcome back to Refreshed. Some exciting news. Refresh is going to be a social enterprise because Amanda and her partner Jose just bought an industrial <laughs> style gelato maker. So she's going to be making Rosie's gelato. Be on the lookout for that. That's very true. If you're in the Chicagoland area, get some Rosie's gelato. Part of the benefits coming to Refreshed. <laughs> Wait, here's a, here's a question, Amanda. Do you feel like you are learning right now? Learning about the gelato business? I absolutely am. Do you feel like you would even call it deeper learning? <laughs> uh, not quite yet. It's pretty basic. We were fortunate enough to be connected with the one and only Sarah Fine. A doctoral candidate. An advanced doctoral candidate at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. So Sarah's actually been working on a book um, about deeper learning, and we talked to her a little bit about what that looks like. Um, she's actually visited upwards of uh, 30 schools all over the United States with her colleague, Jal, um, to see what that looks like in real time, real life, realness. So if you've been following us, you know that our past two episodes have followed a current student and a recent graduate of the program. And Sarah has been their, their educator through that process. So now we're bringing it full circle and completing our trilogy, if you will, with Sarah Fine. A trilogy, I like that. We've, you know, just between me and you, we've never called it a trilogy. <laughs> but now, it now seems so appropriate. <laughs> Listeners who are not familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit, just briefly, who you are? Sure. My name is Sarah Fine. I am currently finishing up my doctoral studies at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Then I started my career 10 years ago um, as a teacher. Um, I had graduated with a degree in English, so um, I thought it was a sort of logical thing to go teach English. So I taught, I worked as a teacher and then later as an instructional coach and department chair at a urban charter school in Washington, D.C. Throughout that time, I started doing some writing about education and got uh, more interested in thinking about education sort of beyond just the particular context I knew in my teaching. So I started doing some, some sort of um, investigative journalism, which eventually led me down the road toward doing doctoral work. And for the last five years, I've been working on what my colleague and I call the Deeper Learning Project, where we've spent time now in about 25 different high schools around the U.S., um, all of which are pursuing this thing called deeper learning, which I'm imagining we're going to talk a little bit about. So I'm really curious, uh, what were you like as a student uh, going through K through 12? Oh, that's a really interesting question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, Well, so I went to a, a sort of large, highly acclaimed uh, public suburban school, so very far from the world that I ended up teaching in and that I'm now sort of committed to thinking about. I was, a, I was a very good student, uh, certainly in terms of performance. I was on the quieter side, which might surprise you given how much we're going to talk today. But I, I don't know, I sort of played the game 
pretty well, which I think is something that a lot of suburban students do. Um, they sort of learn pretty quickly from their parents and their communities that, you know, school is important, and regardless of what they think about whether the work they're doing matters or feels resonant with who they are, you know, you just got to do it, um, and it will get you somewhere later on. So some of what I was doing in school I felt was more interesting than others, but I, you know, put my best foot forward and, and did quite well all along the way. Um, and I always loved to write, so my favorite subjects were always English and history, um, and my English teachers in high school actually were all, all four of them, all three years, were really powerful mentors in my life, which I think is one of the reasons that down the line I ended up being interested in becoming an English teacher. How do you think your experience as a student shaped the kind of teacher that you are? That's also a good question. I think certainly the research says as well, uh, along with sort of anecdotally, I think a lot of teachers would say this, that um, the kind of student that you were and the kind of teachers you had when you were a student have everything to do with the kind of teacher that you become, at least at least at the beginning. Uh, because, because our system has such sort of weak mechanisms for supporting teachers and learning how to teach, uh, and especially in cases like mine where I actually didn't have any formal training as a teacher uh, when I went into it, really what I was drawing on was my sort of mental image of what it meant to teach English um, based on, you know, sitting in a classroom having been a student of English for a long time. So tell us a little bit about what deeper learning is. So um, it's a, obviously a big sort of umbrella concept. We've intentionally in this project tried to allow the different schools and uh, practitioners that we've talked with and seen and spent a lot of time trying to understand, help us understand what deep learning is, meaning we, we didn't want to start with one fixed definition and go into the field trying to find it. We sort of started with a, a set of hypotheses about what we thought deeper learning might be and then also wanted to sort of learn from what we saw. So what we've come out the other side with is very much a sort of a constellation of qualities that we think characterize deep learning in schools um, as well as outside of schools. And so what we come up with for a way to think about it is sort of triangle, uh, which is which is a, you know, overly simplistic heuristic. But um, so if you imagine a triangle where sort of one node of the triangle is about identity. Um, so we certainly have seen, we feel that most, if not all, of the, the really powerful learning experiences that we've seen and that uh, people we've talked to have described um, tap in in some way to an element of the learner's identity. So either they're sort of directly mirroring, uh, you know, the, the identity of the learner, or in the case like when I described to you, you sort of could wake up a learner for, to parts of their identity that they haven't been aware of before. But there's something that sort of gets to the root of, of who they are, not just of how they, like, what's going on in their brain at a given moment. And then another note of the triangle is around mastery, and that's, in some ways, the most, the mastery note is sort of closest to the way that a lot of people think about deep learning um, prior to, to our work, which is, in order to learn something deeply, you have to know a lot of stuff to get good at something, um, whether it's sort of good at thinking in particular ways are good at actually doing something manually. And so we have identity on the one on the one hand and mastery on the other. And then in many, many of the most powerful learning environments that we've seen, classrooms, outside of school environments, et cetera, there's some piece that's around creativity. Um, and I think my colleague, Joel, and I think about creativity not, not just in terms of um, doing something artistic, per se, but it's more about actually producing knowledge. So... I, I think that's sort of like our 
theory of the different pieces that in an ideal world would all be present in the deepest learning experiences. What we actually see is at any given moment in any given classroom or school, the learning that, that students might be doing, if it is powerful, will be closer to one of those nodes or the other. It may not involve all three all at once at the same time, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, you did quite a bit of, of ethnographic research for this book, visiting several dozen schools. Is there an example of a school or even a classroom that you think really is is hitting the nail on the head and really achieving all of those pieces successfully? That is a million-dollar question. Uh, we thought that a lot. The short answer is kind of. Uh, <laughs> so... I suppose in the sense that no one is perfect, is there an example of an educator or a project that you just saw students really thrive in a way that you thought deeper learning is definitely occurring here? Yeah, that for sure. So so just to back up a little bit, what we're looking at in our work is sort of schools as organizations and as communities. But in doing that, we spent a lot of time in individual classrooms and with particular teachers or teams of teachers, and we absolutely saw across the board in all kinds of different schools and all kinds of different places with all kinds of different kids and teachers, really powerful work that at various points took on those different qualities of deep learning. There is a school that we went to, it's actually a Montessori high school, a public high school, which is very unusual. That's interesting. Maria Montessori didn't write very much about high schools, and as a result, um, there aren't very many of them, but um, it's in the Midwest, and it's a public school. Part of what the students do as seniors in that school is they do what they call um, a personal project, and they they write um, essentially spend the entire year investigating uh, a topic of their choice um, with support from mentors and teachers. Um, but what they produce, they do produce the research paper, and they do have to sort of defend it. But they also, a lot of them end up producing actual tangible artifacts that come out or, or sort of doing, taking action in some way um, around what it is that they are investigating. Um, so I think the, the piece of, sort of piece of choice um, is really powerful for them um, because a lot of them choose to investigate things that are, are sort of a personal interest to them. Some of them are investigating professions that they're, they're interested in, so they'll take on some question about professions. Some of them are just sort of pursuing something that they're passionate about and interested in. I think there was one student who was really interested. I can't even remember the name for it. It's like the phenomena where we could potentially um, populate a planet in our, you know, either in our own galaxy or, or close by, where theoretically science tells us that we could over time transform the climate of the planet so that human life could habitate it if we sort of transplanted from uh, here to there. He was just really interested in it. And I, and I remember, this is like several years ago, listening to him tell me about this project where he'd spent this entire year shadowing astrophysicists and people who are doing some of this work, learning about it, reading about it. There's not that many people out there who really know that this, because it's a fairly remote possibility at this point, but that this phenomenon has even been written about and studied. Um, trying to artistically represent what it would look like or what it might be like. I think he had written some short stories, some sort of, uh, you know, futuristic short stories about what it might be like if people on Earth were trying to transplant life onto a planet nearby. I mean, he just sort of explored this question from all of these different angles. 
uh, in a way that I, I'm not sure why he was so interested in it, but I'm sure there was some reason uh, that was really driving him. One of the things that I'm really interested in, is some people might argue that the purpose of school is to facilitate this deeper learning. And you've been doing this research for years now. I'm just really curious um, about your initial reaction to the question about seeing deeper learning. Why do you think that it, it's so difficult to say, yes, deeper learning has occurred in some of these schools that you visited? We, we do feel like we know when we see deep learning. Part of our work the last few years has been to parse out what it is that allows us to um, diagnose when we think deep learning is or isn't happening in classrooms. Do you feel like student choice is usually a part of deeper learning? Does that tie in really nicely with the identity um, aspect of deeper learning that you were talking about? Definitely. One of the big patterns that we have seen in schools again and again and again, which interests us a lot, is that some of the most powerful in deep learning that we see tends to happen sort of at the periphery of core academic classes. A lot of schools, when they think about sort of the work, quote unquote, like the core work that they're engaged in, it's usually teaching English and math and history and science, et cetera. And a lot of the other stuff is sort of considered peripheral, so elective classes or extracurricular activities, sport, drama. What's interesting is a lot of the places that we've seen some of the most powerful learning are actually in those sort of peripheral contexts. So, for example, we spent a lot of time in a very large suburban high school recently where, because they're so big, they have the advantage of being able to offer a really wide range of elective classes um, and extracurriculars. Traditionally, and there's maybe good reason, um, electives have been thought of as a little bit of a joke, right? Like they're the place where kids get to slack off, where they get to sort of take it easy or do fun stuff, quote unquote. But on the other hand, a lot of the classes that we went into that were sort of classes that students had chosen to participate in rather than sort of being put in as mandatory requirements were the most interesting and powerful places that we saw in terms of teaching and learning. So even, even for example, even elective versions of core academic classes, so in this case, seniors had a lot of options about the type of English class that they took, so it looked a little bit more like college, where there were, there were some seniors who were opting into sort of a regular, for example, AP class, sort of survey of uh, British Lit type class, but there were others who were in creative writing, who were in classes that were focused sort of on um, uh, informational text journalism, um, we saw some students um, who were in classes like film scoring, green engineering, um, some who were in a design class. And those, those places across the board were places where there were just really interesting things happening, where both the teachers and students, it felt more, when you walk in, like there was sort of just a, a community of practice there where, where students and teachers were working sort of with each other in service of something really interesting. And in most cases, they were they were working to sort of create something together, produce something together. The, the teachers often had a certain passion and joy for what it was that they were teaching that didn't necessarily transfer to some of the other core courses that they were teaching. And so those were, were really interesting places, and we have some hunches about some of the reasons that they were. One of the things that we really enjoyed was reading your article 
teaching differently, learning deeply. Um, but one of the things that really stuck out, and I'll just quote exactly what it says because I thought it was really interesting. And it said, to some, having teachers take on the role of coach or guide or facilitator seems equivalent to asking them to abandon their primary responsibilities. And I thought it was really funny, even in these examples that you're giving, the role of the teacher is really pretty different than what many of us experienced. And even as you said, as yourself as a teacher, you really modeled teachers that you had in the past. So there is a degree of uncomfortableness in in teaching in a way that kind of facilitates this deeper learning. As someone who now is a teacher of teachers, how do you teach someone to be a facilitator in in the sense that what achieves effective deeper learning rather than the traditional model of teaching that they themselves maybe experienced? That's another million dollar question. <laughs> We're full million of million dollar question. <laughs> I mean, so what you're asking really, and what you're, the way that you ask that question suggests to me that you have a pretty strong sense of um, one of the things that my colleague Dahl and I have thought a lot about, which is sort of the mechanisms by which we don't have as much deep learning as we'd like. And certainly one of them, like you're suggesting, is the fact that in the absence of really, really high-quality teacher education, teachers teach the way that they were taught, at which point if the way that they were taught was not that deep, then, you know, they don't really know much else. It's not not a particular fault. It's just they're drawing on models, mental models that haven't really been disrupted. So, you know, the question about how do you, quote unquote, disrupt the sort of notions of what teaching should look and feel like in a way that helps teachers to take on a, a different role, at risk of being really circular, one of the most important pieces is to have them experience the kinds of, of teaching and learning as learners that they ultimately, the ultimate goal would be to support them in, in becoming themselves. So a lot of the novice teachers that I work with and that I've encountered, they really desperate to teach in more powerful and deep ways. But what they lack are sort of rich, thick, personal understandings of what it actually looks like and what it actually feels like to be in a learning environment that has different qualities, the kinds of qualities that can allow students to be involved in deep learning. So it's there's a sort of model deficit where one of the things that, that I have found is really useful as a, very, as a starting point for new teachers or teachers who are looking to change their practice is just to look at examples of classrooms where deep learning of one variety or another is happening. So the most powerful thing of all, obviously, is to be able to walk into a real live classroom and to sit there for a long time, potentially for days and weeks. But, you know, that doesn't, you know, we don't have the luxury of doing that often with, with new teachers. So in the absence of that, we look at a lot of videos. Uh, I find that the medium of video just can communicate a lot more than the written word. It's really powerful when, when a teacher sees another teacher, ideally one that they can relate to, practicing teaching in a way that is like you say, more about facilitating deep understanding on the part of students and more about guiding students, supporting students in constructing their own meanings, um, helping students to really sort of gain some momentum around something that they're interested in, helping them to produce something original. It's, it's a really powerful example, and more teachers than that, like that alone is not nearly enough to help them change their practice, but, but that really does help them begin to talk about what it might look like uh, and what it might actually mean in terms of instructional practice to, to do that. So that's definitely one starting point. 
You had an article in Education Week called All Work and No Play, Why High School Students Should Have Fun. And a lot about that article was how play can be a really powerful tool to help people think non-traditionally. I'm just really curious if you can think of um, examples of how the Harvard Graduate School of Education is incorporating play into the classrooms at the university level. Yeah, so I've written a lot about this, that, um, what I call intellectual playfulness, which which is a little bit different than play itself. I do think playfulness as a sort of quality that can characterize teaching and learning is a little bit different than when we say play. In terms of playfulness, one of the things that I think is really important is just to give students time to sort of open-endedly explore possibilities of one sort or another. So one of the things that we do is we go through a sustained design process, the model of the Stanford Design School and um, IDEO as a big design firm. And they're designing, ultimately, there's some designing artifacts that hopefully will help the the field move toward deeper learning. But one of the, the pieces of that process that I find to be most powerful and one of the reasons I really like the design process is that there's this phase that the design world calls, calls ideation, where you, you have a problem or it's a goal on the table. But you have this phase where everybody at the table has this license to just play around with as many possible ideas as they can. The idea is just get everything out there and really give yourself license not to feel like you have to come up with the, the best thing right away, not to feel like bad ideas or risky ideas are going to be undervalued. And then sort of even within that ideation stage, often once you have a whole lot of ideas on the table, it is just to play around with different possibilities for how you might put some of those ideas together in a way that might be useful, how you might explore given one of those possibilities further. So it's hard to say what it is that makes that different from what teachers call brainstorming. And I, I, as a teacher, I certainly was culprit of this, where I'd have an upcoming essay or an upcoming assignment, and I'd say, okay, everybody, I want you just to brainstorm now. In theory, brainstorming is sort of the same idea, but something about the way that ideation phase of the design process goes down seems pretty pretty important, um, in part because it just lets a lot of different voices that sort of be heard in a way that's non-judgmental. So that's, that's one small way, I think, where we're at least in this particular course on teaching, we're trying to sort of get students to be intellectually playful. I think it's really interesting how that relates back to your comments earlier on electives and a lot of people thinking them as throwaways, but oftentimes that's when really great learning happens is because that playfulness is something that's coming into play in effective elective coursework. Certainly, in a lot of elective process, we see that there's just a lot, a lot more room for that. Like, if you here's an interesting connection. We have a um, I know of a um, staff developer who is formerly a principal who has been working with the school to try to help its teachers really shift their thinking about teaching in a way that would help them to facilitate deeper learning. Um, and she has found that it de- it doesn't work particularly well to try to ask them to be more playful and to be more to allow kids to take more risks within the subjects that they already teach because they're so sort of steeped in the way that they teach and they're so vested in, in what they know how to do already that the unlearning that would be involved there is, is problematic for them. So what she has done instead is she's taken this whole set of teachers at this particular school and she decided that what they needed to do was to learn engineering together, which is a subject that in this case none of them knew almost anything about. Uh, and so her staff development plan, at least the first phase of it, has been to get this group of teachers into a space, literally, where they don't know very much, 
where by necessity there's just a lot of sort of messing around, playing around, trying stuff out and feeling at it. And where they're all sort of elevated uh, or demoted, depending on how you think about it, to the status of sort of novice. And where the, the nature of the subject itself really invites the kind of um, trial and error and play that she thinks is, you know, could be more powerful in other subjects. So these teachers give them a bunch of materials and duct tape and who knows what else and tell them to try to build a system <laughs> that does something or other, and they have no idea how to do it. And they'll spend several hours trying to figure it out. But the theory there is that actually by being sort of outside of the, the constraints of these disciplines that we, we have these really strong notions of what they should look like. So her theory is that by moving teachers way outside of that realm, that there can really be the kind of learning on the part of the teachers that allows them to, to rethink what teaching and learning could look like more and more generally. Uh, just as a, a final question, I would like to hear how you would like to see public education change in the next five years. To preface that question, I'll just sort of harken back to one of the things that I, I just always have in mind. So there's a, a scholar um, named David Cohen who's written a lot about education policy and the, the sort of broader landscape. And he he talks about education reform in a, a really long view, with a view of sort of like the whole historical arc of what teaching and learning has been like traditionally as far back as we know. And the point that he makes is that it's really only in the last hundred years or so that we've even begun, not just in the U.S., but sort of globally, to think about learning rather than teaching and to really pay attention to, to what learners experience and to think about how to make those experiences more powerful and more deep and more meaningful. And he says that essentially the, the paradigm of teaching and learning all the way until 100 years ago, more or less, has been what he calls a scholastic inheritance, where the paradigm of teachers are experts who have this accumulated fixed body of knowledge in their heads, and their role is to hold forth, to profess what they know to their students, and uh, by doing that, to sort of transfer their knowledge into their students' heads so that the the knowledge gets sort of handed down over generations. So his point is just that 100 years is real blip on the radar, if you think in that way, um, which is actually a fairly hopeful way to think about all of this, to think about some of the, the change efforts that are underway, because it makes you think that, yeah, actually, really our sort of attempts to move toward deeper learning at scale in formal schools especially is really quite new, and we may well still be in the very, very early stages of figuring out how you could organize systems to support that. So with that in mind, that's that's what sort of like five years in my mind is really not very much. Uh, and I often question myself, like how much is even uh, accomplishable like in my lifetime? You know, what's, what's a realistic way to think about how we move towards something that's just sort of a different paradigm? So but that's not an answer to your question. I think five years from now, deeper learning is not something that we can afford to think about as icing on the cake for the, the kids who happen to have been born into families where they can go to good schools or the kids who happen to have um, really strong academic skills or inclinations. So my hope would be that an increasing number of schools over the next five years are really just trying stuff out um, and acting on that recognition because we certainly hear from school leaders everywhere now. Increasingly, even over the last five years that I've been doing this project, we hear the rhetoric of, of deeper learning and the desire for kids to graduate really as critical thinkers and consumers of information. 
Um, we hear that everywhere now, and we didn't even as of three or four years ago. We didn't. We heard it from sort of the particular leaders in the field that we were studying, um, but not from the sort of garden variety district leaders that we would encounter. And, and more and more, I think people are talking about it. So I guess what I would hope is that that talk really turns into experimentation, mm-hmm. and that there are just schools all over the place that are are willing to take risks and disrupt what is only moderately working for them. It, it seems like. The desire to move outside of the realm of what we already know in terms of teaching and learning is strong, but we just sort of lack imagination about what a different reality could look like. And so the more people are in schools and particular leaders and particular teachers are experimenting with different ways to teach, uh, different ways to engage with students around content, the more that we're going to have these little existence proofs that it's possible to do things differently and the more we're going to be able to understand what different ways of doing things differently have to offer. Well, this is a very exciting time to have folks like you looking into to making classrooms a more effective place and I I do think it's hopeful what you said. I mean, think, oh, it's been 100 years a certain way, but really that's not to say that it has to be 100 more years of the exact same thing. So thank you so much for sharing with us about your yeah, research and, and we really enjoyed speaking with you today. Okay, thank you both. Listeners, you might not be able to see this, but uh, I can see it. Amanda is power posing right now, which is super appropriate because we feel powerful after listening to Sarah's words of encouragement. What a great note to end on for our first ever trilogy exploring Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Amanda, what did you think? I love what she had to say. I think even though all of our interviewees in this series didn't necessarily have all the answers, they were very hopeful about positive impact. It's been so fascinating hearing about how some of their views of teaching and learning have continued to develop, not only in the course of the actual graduate program, but well beyond that. I'm definitely excited to, it sounds so creepy, to keep tabs on all of them, to keep track (laughs) of all of them. Um, No, but to continue to follow all of their work. Amanda and I are doing a little experiment of our own. We were very fortunate to be invited to Polaris Charter Academy here in Chicago that their model is around expeditionary learning, um, which for those of you who are not familiar means bringing in experts and teaching the kids how to do some real life projects. They've done awesome work. They've made murals. They've written books. And this semester they are taking on podcasting for the seventh graders. And JD and I have had the super fun task of of being the experts. Yeah, by no means are we experts. We're really inspiring kids, and we are definitely looking forward to sharing with you what they were able to create through this whole experience. Until next time. Until next time. Keep learning. <laughs>